This dynamic message is brought to you by Redemption in Jesus with Marco Rava. Praise God. All right, so we today, as I said, we are going to continue with the series that we started a few weeks ago. This is part three today, and here's the title of our series, Judgment, the Believer, and Grace. And this is part three. Now, in part three, <clears throat> we are going to look at the judgment seat of Christ and also, hopefully, the fire that will test everyone's work. Now, remember, we spoke about a lot of this stuff in length in part one and two, so I don't necessarily want to repeat all that. But as a reminder, and then we're going to get right into it, remember that in part one, we looked at how the unbeliever and the believer, because it is implied, how the unbeliever, though, will be judged by the words of Jesus. And we saw that in John 12, verse 47 and 48, you remember, it's not on the screen, but we saw and we looked at that. And Jesus said, he said, I'm not going to judge them. What I said is going to judge them because he said it. He said what he needed to say about God, about himself, about redemption. And he said, ultimately, those who choose to reject it and not believe, it's those very words that will judge them. And so we saw that conversely, then also the believer has been, is, and will always be judged by the words of Jesus. Because Jesus, through the finished work of the cross, He said that we are forgiven for all of our sin. And so those words of Jesus judge the believer always. You are forgiven because Jesus said it, and He did what was necessary for you to be forgiven. Then also we are righteous and holy before God in Jesus. And... We are accepted in the beloved, that's Jesus, by God because of what Jesus has done. So those very words that Jesus spoke about our forgiveness, about our righteousness, about our holiness, about our acceptance before God and to God, we live by those words because we are judged by those very words. Amen. And so we have been judged. And so for the believer, judgment for sin and for being sinful. In other words, for your sins and for being in the nature of fallen Adam, which is sinful, judgment took place on the cross. And God is not going to judge you or your sin twice. Did you hear what I said? That is such simple but yet powerful truth that sadly so many in Christendom don't understand. They just don't have the revelation that on the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, and He gave up His Spirit. Sadly, what so many believers don't realize and understand, that Jesus not only died for them, but He also died as them. And by doing that, He then took care of the sin issue between us and God. He was judged for us and as us with all of our sin, for all of our sin. And God is not going to judge that sin twice. God is not going to judge you twice for sin, for being sinful and for your sins. He did that on, on, on the cross in Jesus. Amen. So it's done. So really and truly, there is nothing that God has left to judge you for in a negative way. There's nothing that He has left to judge you for as far as sin and being sinful 
goes. So remember, we covered that in part one. And then in part two, so if you missed any of this, or if this sounds new to you, go listen again to part one. It's all available on our website, on our podcast, on our YouTube channel. You can go see it. It's all there. And then in part two, we saw how we are completely forgiven of all sin. All. (laughs) Every bit of it. Past, present, future. And you know, if I think about myself, I mean, here I am alive in 2023. I may be 56 years old, but when Jesus died for my sin, when He died for me and as me, I wasn't even born. I wasn't even alive. So all of my sin and sinfulness was in the future tense. So, you know, having an argument about tenses doesn't even make sense because I know some doctrines in Christendom say you are forgiven for your past sin, you are forgiven for your present sin if you confess it, but as far as your future sin, you better make sure that you deal with it real carefully. So, in other words, it makes you accountable. Then you think, well, why did Jesus then, what did he do on the cross? Amen. And so that's an incomplete message of redemption. And so we are completely forgiven. And we wanted to solidify that truth in part two because we need to make sure that we understand that doctrinally correct. We need to make sure that our doctrine, our belief system is well established in gospel truth. Because if we don't think that we are completely forgiven of all sin, then yeah, we're going to embrace doctrines that preach partial truth, that mix law and grace, and they don't, they don't give us the clarity of the gospel. And we're going to believe that. And we're going to believe that we can lose our salvation, even though we cannot. We can reject it, but we can never lose it as far as God is concerned. Amen. And so we are completely forgiven of all sin. And so we saw in part two that fallen humanity to this day has two major problems when it comes to sin. First of all, they have a sin problem. Secondly, they have a sins problem. They have a problem with inheriting the fallen nature of Adam, which is sinful. That's the sin problem. And then because they are sinful, they sin. And so they have a sinning problem. And so anyone who has not received salvation in Jesus, who has not been redeemed, by the finished work of the cross, they are still in that fallen state in Adam, and therefore they have a sin problem, and they have a sins problem. Two issues, amen, and we we clarified all this in part two, so I don't want to get into it all over again. And so therefore, anyone who is going to be redeemed through Jesus and the finished work of the cross has to understand that they needed deliverance from sin, in other words, the state of sin, being sinful, they needed deliverance from that, but also they needed forgiveness of sins, or for sins. Because of their fallen nature, their sinful nature, they have a propensity to sin. We all had it before we received salvation. And therefore, this is why Jesus died for us, so that we can be forgiven for sins, but He also died as us, so we can be delivered from the sinful state. You see, these are truths that need to be clarified in our belief system, in our understanding. And so this is why, as I said, He died for us so we can be forgiven for sins, and He died as us so we can be delivered from the state of sin 
But then there's a third aspect to that. He also then comes and lives in us and He lives through us. Why? So that that deliverance from that sinful state can remain intact and solid and unchanged. Amen. I hope you're grasping all this. If you didn't, go listen to part two again or watch it and get a hold of that. And so as our substitute on the cross, Jesus secured the forgiveness of sins for us. But as our substitute within us, He then secures our deliverance from sin, the sinful state. So Jesus took care of the sin issue and He took care of the sins issue. So He delivered us from the fallen state, the sinful state, and He also got us forgiveness for sins. Therefore, we have and there is no sin issue between us and God. And this is why we are believers. So even though we still live in this fallen house, this fallen body, that is not our identity. Who we are on the inside, which is our spirit, which is the eternal part of us, is really a new creation. It has been born again and it is a, it is a creation that is sinless and does not sin. Now, yeah, we may, mis we may make mistakes in this body. Our emotions, our feelings, our decisions may also cause us to do that. But this is why we walk by faith and not by sight. Understanding that you have been forgiven, you have been delivered from a sinful state, and you have been forgiven of sinning, sin, sin, sinfulness, if you will. And so that's key to understand. And the reason why I'm recapping all this is because we need to be solidified in those truths. So when you think about all of that and everything that I've said so far, which is a short recap of parts one and two, then God has no reason to judge the believer either for being sinful or for sinning. Because by them receiving salvation in Jesus, they have been born again. They are a new creation. Therefore, they are no longer sinful before God. And also they are forgiven of all their sin. So if that's taken care of, what is there left for God to judge? He's not going to judge you twice for that. He's already done it in and through Jesus. And so this is why we need to clarify things such as the understanding of what people say is the judgment seat of Christ and also how our works will be put through the fire and all of that. <clears throat> and so we're going to aim to clarify that today. So let's begin by looking at the judgment seat of Christ. Now I'm not going to labor it on it extensively because I have done teaching on it before, but I want to make this available on our website. As you know, it's been revamped and we're replacing the messages and a lot of the older messages are not there anymore. So we want to put this in there with the understanding that we have up to today. And so the judgment seat of Christ. Let's have a look at that. We find that in two portions. Let's have a look at the first one. Romans chapter 14 verse 10, the second part of that verse. Watch what it says. Now it's talk, he has Paul the Apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit speaking to believers. And watch what he says. Watch, note the words that I've emboldened and also set in different color. He says, for we, he's talking to believers, he's including himself in it. So you know that this applies to believers, those who have received salvation in Jesus. He says, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
Now you see what people do with this is, is that those who teach the way they teach mixing law and grace and you know not teaching everything in context what they do is, is they say see there it is there the believer will face the judgment seat of Christ and what they will tell you is, is that there is a final judgment for the believer and this is it. Now we know there is the white throne judgment which is for the unbeliever and also and and maybe this will carry on with this I don't know maybe I'll just teach on it separately about the judgment of the nations and maybe I should teach a series on just judgments and clarify all of that but we're talking about the believer here and the grace of God and so notice that Paul said that believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ well we need to clarify some things about that portion and so let me show you that portion again with the definition of the word that I had in a different color, which is judgment seat. Here it is here. Notice he said, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now even though in our English translations it says judgment seat, in actual fact if you look at an original source such as the Strong's Dictionary, <clears throat> there is only one word for those two words in our English translation and it's the word seat you actually will not find the word judgment in the original so you could read it this way for we shall all stand before the seat of Christ <laughs> it doesn't imply anything about judgment if you look at the original meaning which we're about to do it actually doesn't have judgment as the first intended meaning so here's the word in the Strong's uh, Dictionary that you see there. Even though it says judgment seat, it's actually just seat. And there's the Greek number if you want to study it further. And it's the word bema, which comes from the word bematos. Okay, that's the parent word. Now notice, it's one word. So judgment was not in the original. So already there it shows you that this is not about judgment. Not judgment for sin at least anyway. And notice, look at what it means. First and foremost, it means a step. So in other words, it's something that you step up to, that you step on. And it says that is foot breadth. So in other words, it is meant to be a step. And it says that we will all stand before a step. The foot. So in other words, we're going to step up onto something. By implication, a rostrum. Now, if you look up the meaning of that word rostrum, it talks about, you know, a platform where someone preaches from, where someone makes, uh, performs music from, where someone sings. And as you know, we have what we call them stages today. In essence, that's what a rostrum is. It's a stage. It's an elevated area where someone speaks or performs. It says that is, then comes this, a tribunal, which is what the Romans used to use this for. Then it says judgment seat. And you'll see that it's not judgment in the bad sense, but in a good sense. Set foot on throne. So it's something you get up to. It's almost like a throne. So you can see from the original meaning that what that word actually implies is definitely not judgment for sin. And you'll see, and we'll clarify that more in a moment. Now, the other portion. So remember, what Bema means is an elevated section really just made for you to stand on where you get up and you stand on so that you can be recognized apparently 
so that you can also be receive something. That's what this is implying. And so the other portion where we find this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Now I've shown you how our English and modern translations in most modern languages, they put in judgment seat. And I'm guessing that the translators, perhaps, you know, we're all human. None of us know everything. We're all learning. They probably figured this has to do with judgment. That's why they put the word and added the word judgment. But as you can see, it should not have been there. And this is the same in the portion we're about to read. Even though you'll see judgment seat as two words, it's actually one word. It's just bema. Judgment is not there in the original. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Again, he says, For we, talking about believers then, must all, so every single one of us, no one is exempt, appear. Now notice, he uses the word appear here, not stand. And if you look at the one in Romans, it actually should have said appear, not stand. But he uses the word stand because we're going to get up on that platform and stand. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That should be the bema of Christ. And I've already told you, judgment should not be there. Watch this. That everyone, so every single believer, may receive, notice receive, the things done in his body. So it's going to be about receiving, not about taking away or removing. That we may receive the things done in his body or her body. In other words, in this world, here on earth. Watch this. According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, <laughs> I want to draw your attention. This is from the original. Okay. Now you'll see some of the words are in italics meaning that those words were added by the translators to help us understand. So in the original, those words are not there. And so if you read that second part without the italics, this is what it would say. That everyone may receive the things in body according to that he had done, whether good or bad. See? And that already gives us a bit of a different understanding. Now notice, judgment seat is the same word bema, so judgment should not be there. So we're going to stand before the bema, which is the platform, the raised platform, that we're going to be invited to stand on and apparently receive and not be ta have anything taken away. Even the things that are bad, it says, and I'll explain that more in a moment. Okay, so <laughs> now that we've seen that, instead of me getting into a whole theological session here, which I have done before, in different teachings that I've taught on this, what I want to do is I want to show you the commentary, if you will. It's not really commentary. It's actually the meaning. I want to show you, but it's, it's, it's a resource that looks at the original and gives us an extensive explained out meaning. And this resource actually goes and looks at other scholar works and pulls from them and puts together one intended meaning for that specific thing. And so if you'd like to study it and if you'd like to get into all of that, I would strongly suggest and recommend that you go and look at this resource because I've just pulled out excerpts from you. Did I say that word correctly? Excerpts. Just portions. I've pulled out portions from that meaning, but it's actually pages and pages of explanation. And so what I've done is I've pulled out just certain sections, certain portions because of today's message to under, help us understand. And what I'm talking about here 
is the Lexham Bible Dictionary. So what I'm about to do is, I think it's four different paragraphs or five. <laughs> I'm going to read four or five different portions from that resource that explain the portions we've just read. Romans 14.10, the second part, and 2 Corinthians 5.10, which both talk about the judgment seat, even though I've already shown you judgment shouldn't be there. So the Bema of Christ and what's going to happen there. And so let's take a look at that. Watch us carefully on the screen and follow with me. Here's the first portion from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Okay, Watch what it says there. And this is all directly quoted from that resource. I haven't done anything there. It's a direct, I cannot do anything, obviously. It's directly quoted from them. They say, rather than being viewed as a judicial bench, in other words, judgment for something, the judgment seat of Christ should be viewed as the reward seat. Look at that. It should be viewed as the reward seat, not the judgment seat. Such was customary in the Grecian games in Athens. So Paul wrote this with them in mind. In which those presiding over the games sat atop this judgment seat. So you see, it's a good judgment. Not in a judicial fashion, but rather to evaluate an athlete's performance and assess a proper reward. <laughs> so you can see from that so far that what he is saying, we can move on from that, what he is saying is, is that what, how this should be viewed is like, for example, the Olympics or any sports games that we have. You know, in the Olympic, Olympics specifically of our time, whenever you have the top three winners, first, second, and third prize, they invite them to come to the Bema, which is what we've seen it actually means, and they ask them to step, and that little platform is enough for them to stand on. They can't lie down on it and put a couch on it. It's just enough for them to stand on, which is what the Bema is. So they get invited, okay, first place, you stand on the highest one, second place on the next level one, and third place on the next one. That is the Bema, and they are invited to step on it so they can be recognized and rewarded. And then they give them first place medal, second place medal or trophy, whatever else, and third place. And so that's what this is saying this is. It's a reward ceremony. It's an occasion for reward. This is why we receive. Now, the Lexham Bible Dictionary continues. Watch the next portion here. The concept of a reward seat is not limited to the judgment seat of Christ, as it also applies to the judgment seat of God in Romans chapter 14 and verse 10. And you'll see that it can also be translated as the judgment seat of God, is what he's saying. Which is really, judgment is not there, as you know, because the Bema is of God and of Christ, therefore. It says, in both of these contexts, Paul is addressing fellow believers and encouraging them regarding the honor they will receive from the Messianic and or divine judge, talking about God, sitting upon the judgment seat. So in other words, what he is saying is, is that we are going to be invited to step up to the step and before us on his seat is going to be the great judge, God himself in Jesus, and he is going to honor and reward us. That's what this is saying.
That's why the word judgment shouldn't be there because it's the Bema. You see, and Paul understood that when he wrote this, the, his audience understood that they knew what he meant. This is why there was no question. He didn't have to labor on explaining it. Then the Lexham Dictionary continues. And watch what it says. Now he talks about, they talk specifically about Romans and Corinthians. In Romans, Paul writes that believers should give a full account of their lives to God, who will in turn evaluate each believer's life to determine what reward shall be given. So in other words, yes, we are going to step up. And honestly, I hope that I don't have to, I'm not going, even going to try and say anything, explain myself or anything, because I'm just glad to be there. I'm just glad for mercy and grace. But notice that we step up confidently knowing that this is an account of my life beyond salvation and what I have done for the gospel. And you can get, you're getting up there because you're about to be rewarded. Nothing's about to be taken away from you. And I know some of you are thinking, well, what about Corinthians? It said good or bad. We're going to in actual fact, the lexicon is going to clarify that for us in a moment. So let's continue then from the Lexham Dictionary, Bible Dictionary. Then it says, In 2 Corinthians, each believer will be rewarded based on the deeds in the body. That is, actions taken while alive, whether good or bad. Good deeds will receive a greater reward, and bad deeds will lessen the reward. See that? They're going to lessen the reward. They're not going to take away the reward. You know, it would be like an athlete, for example, who's running a race and they're in first place, but then they get distracted and look at the grandstands and look at who's cheering for them and they slow down a little bit and they end up in second place. You see, that was a bad deed, if you will, which ended up affecting the reward. That's kind of the picture that's been painted here. So notice it says, and bad deeds will lessen the reward. Yet, the judgment seat remains only for believers in Christ who have already been justified, in other words, forgiven and given new life in Jesus, and found worthy to stand before the judge, having their lives inspected to determine their rewards. And like I said to you, I've only taken portions from the lexicon. It actually goes into great detail explaining everything. They explain the historical background, how it's applied in the Bible, how it was applied in society. It's pretty powerful. It's a pretty great resource. And as I said, they pull from different places and they tell you where those places are. So it's pretty, pretty awesome. If you don't have that resource, you can get it digitally. You can buy the book. Um, it's pretty, pretty awesome for Bible study. And so you can see that they explain that for us. So what we see there is, is that the Bema, therefore, is the place where rewards are given to believers, much like the Olympics, like I said, and where winners are recognized and rewarded. Because in Jesus, we are more than conquerors. In Jesus, we are victorious. And so therefore, we will have confidence in that day. We will step up knowing that we are about to receive something. And yes, some of the bad things, some of, and, and I'll explain that in a moment now, some of those things that were not the best, yeah, they will affect our rewards. See, this is why we are encouraged to live for God with all that we have. Because we want to get the most in eternity, don't we? So, to help us understand that 
bad part, the worthless, even though the lexem's already explained it, let's take a look at that same portion, that verse 10, from the Passion Translation, which actually does a good job of translating it accurately from the original as far as understanding its meaning. So here it is here. 2 Corinthians 5.10 from the Passion. For one day we will all be openly revealed before Christ. See that? That's exactly what is going to happen at the Bema. On His throne, so that each of us, notice, every single one of us, will be duly recompensed for our actions. So every little thing we did for God's kingdom specifically, will is be noticed, God takes note of it, and He is looking forward to rewarding us. Then it says, done in life, whether good or worthless. That's how it should be translated from the original, worthless. In other words, some things were just not the greatest, and yet they'll affect our reward, but we're still going to get the reward. We're still going to get the benefit. From it. So really what this implies is, is that God looks at everything we do and even the things that are not the most beneficial. He finds a way to incorporate it and still reward us. Amen. Now if any, for any reason anyone's taking this, well I can just do whatever I want. And so, no, that's not what that's talking about. I've explained that clearly. I hope you didn't misunderstand that. And so even though we understand, and you know it's not on the screen, but Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 makes it so clear. Even though we are not saved by works, we see that our works will impact our eternal future. Amen. Remember, these are works of faith. These are works of gratitude. These are works just because we realize what God has done to redeem us. It's not because we're trying to earn or deserve anything because we cannot. These are just works as our expression of our gratitude to God. And God takes them and rewards us for them. Isn't it powerful? I mean, that's the heart of God. And that's how that portion, those two portions should be understood. Praise God. So you can see that it doesn't deal with sin. It has nothing to do with sin because it's already been dealt with at the cross. That's why grace is extended to us even at the bema of God. Amen. Or what people would otherwise say, the judgment seat. And if they insist on putting judgment, yeah, it's a good judgment. You know, when I eat a piece of cake, and you know, I love chocolate cake, and I'm going to make myself hungry and make you want it probably, but if you get a tall cake, chocolate cake, and it's moist on the inside, not wet, but moist, just enough moisture there, just to let your taste buds have a party. <laughs> you know, if you have a slice of that, you judge that cake as being awesome. Or if someone gives you a chocolate cake and it's all dry on the inside that, you know, your mouth has to work harder to produce extra saliva just to moisten it so you can swallow it. Well, you judge that as not so good, but you're still enjoying it. It's still chocolate cake. And so this is kind of the picture that is being painted here. So we judge things. And it doesn't mean because we have the word judgment in it, it's always bad. And that's in essence what we need to understand from this. I mean, have a look at this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 from the Passion Translation. Peter here says, Since you call on Him as your heavenly Father, so he's talking to believers, the impartial judge, in other words, he doesn't have favorites and, you know, compromise in his judgment, who judges, watches, according to each one's works. 
Live each day with holy awe and reverence throughout your time here on earth. In other words, Peter is sharing the same truth, the same understanding as Paul. And what he is saying is, is that, yes, you are going to face a reward ceremony eventually. And, you know, make the best of it while you can here on earth. Because once you're there, there's nothing else you can do. It's done. All you'll do is receive the reward. But you can actually determine the quality, the quantity, if you will, the extent, if you will, of that reward here on earth. So live the best you can for God here. Live holy here. Live righteous here. Do what you can for God and the gospel here. Because all of that is going to determine what you'll get there. That's in essence what he's saying. Which then leads us to the question of, what about the fire that will test each one's work? Let's have a look at that from 1, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 13. Notice he says there, <clears throat> every man's work. Now you know that means every person, every believer in essence. You'll see this is talking about believers here in some way. Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work. You know that it's also talking about the woman. Every man's work of what sort it is. And so traditionally, this is taught to say, see, every single thing you do here on earth is going to be judged. And God is a fire, and so He is going to put your works through His fire, through His presence, and whatever burns up, you have a loss. Whatever stays, you get. Now, that almost seems contradictory to what we've just understood about the judgment seat of Christ and the fact that it's a reward ceremony, right? But again, it's hard not to see this as something that, hold on, it looks like we will face a judgment for our works specifically. And if our works make it through the fire, then we'll get something. But if not, we lose it all. It almost seems contradictory. But you see, here's the thing. And you know, I always say this to you, wonderful saints of God. You know, when it comes to understanding Scripture, when it comes to interpreting Scripture, when it comes to studying Scripture and making sure you understand it and interpret it correctly, there's three things that I always encourage you to do. Number one is read everything in context. You know, chapter numberings, verse numberings are great. They help us find Scripture. But they're not there in the original. They were written as letters. And a letter you read in context. You don't just take one phrase and make a, a story out of it. Just in the same way, you, you can't take one verse just because it has a verse number in front of it and make a doctrine out of it. Read it in context. Then you'll see what it's actually talking about and what it's saying. The second thing I always say to you is let the Bible interpret itself. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Go see where else or it's, it talks about it and you'll get the picture. And then the third thing is, is that always look at everything through the eyes of God's love or through the lens of the finished work of the cross. Because that's what the ultimate message is about. And you'll understand it correctly. And so that's what we need to do here. And the simple thing we're going to do here is look at the context of this verse. And you're about to see that the context explains it on its own clearly. So we don't have to preach and try and do an exegesis and draw this and draw that. We can. It'll still give us the same conclusion if we do it correctly, if we divide the Word of God correctly. 
But ultimately, the context here explains to us what this is about. And what you're about to see, we'll, we're going to look at the context now. What you're about to see is, is that it's not talking about every believer, first of all. It's talking about those who preach and teach the gospel. Those who have a calling to preach and teach from God. Not those who decide to preach and teach, but those who are called of God to preach and teach. But it's because of those who decide to preach and teach that these kind of things happen. And this is why God says, I'm going to put your works through the fire so you can see what you've done as far as preaching and teaching the gospel correctly. And you'll see that that's what the context is. So pay attention to the context, okay? So we're going to read that now from the Passion Translation. We're going to get the context, the immediate context. And so we're going to read from verse 5 all the way through to 15 to understand 13. Okay? So let's have a look at it. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. <clears throat> Watch this now. Paul speaking here. Pay attention to who it's talking about and why. It says, who is Apollos really? Now, Apollos was another apostle who was going around preaching and teaching the gospel. Okay? And Paul knew about him. And they were fine, even though Priscilla and Aquila at one point pulled him aside and corrected his doctrine because he was teaching it incorrectly. And so I think this is why also Paul brings this up, because, I, you know, like all of us, we're learning. He says, who is Apollos really, or who is Paul? And the reason why he says that is because some people were saying, well, I follow Apollos and I follow Paul. And he's saying, who are we really? Don't follow us. Follow the truth, is what he's getting to here. He says, aren't we both just servants through whom you believed our message? So you can see that Paul is talking about his ministry and his message, or you could say doctrine. So he's talking about both, he and Apollos' ministry and their message. And he says, don't go and follow one or the other. He says, at the end of the day, we're all servants of God, and it is the message that matters. That's what he's saying in saying that. Then he says, aren't each of us doing the ministry the Lord has assigned to us? So he recognizes Paul's call, uh, Apollos' calling. And he says, so aren't we both just doing what God called us to do? Which is what? To teach and preach the gospel. Because that's what they did as apostles. Then he says in verse 6, I was the one who planted the church and Apollos came and cared for it. But it was God who caused it to grow. Now notice, because the subject here is teaching, preaching, really doctrine, you can see that this is not talking about numerical growth, but spiritual growth through the understanding and the teaching of gospel truth. Right? Then he goes on and he says in verse 7, This means the one who plants is not anybody special, nor the one who waters, for God is the one who brings the supernatural growth. Talking about spiritual growth of those who are listening and enjoy their teaching and their preaching and their ministry. Powerful stuff, isn't it? So you can see that the context here is about those in ministry who are called of God to preach and teach the gospel, gospel truth. Can you see the essence there? All right, let's continue now in verse 8. Now the one who plants and the one who waters are equally important and on the same team. But each will be rewarded for his own work. Look at that. What is that work that he's talking about? Teaching and preaching the gospel. 
So in other words, God is going to hold everyone who has been called and answered the call to teach and preach individually, and He is going to reward them. Notice, not judge them and damn them, but He's going to reward them for the work they did. In other words, God is going to say, yeah, you preached the gospel correctly, or, you know, you had a few things missing there, so here's your reward. So God is going to do that Himself with those who preach and teach, specifically. Then He says in verse 9, We are co-workers with God, and you are God's cultivated garden, the house He is building. In other words, He's using us to build you up spiritually. So you can see again, it's not about numerical growth, although that's the result of it too. He's talking about spiritual growth through sound doctrine. Can you see that? Can you see that that's what this is about, the context? Okay, great. Let's continue now with verse 10 uh, to 11. God has given me unique gifts as a skilled master builder who lays a good foundation. Now remember, he's talking about preaching and teaching, his ministry, right? So in other words, he says, God has given me unique gifts, talking about the revelation that he received from the Lord. And he says, to lay the foundation, which is what? Jesus and the finished work. The gospel truth is what he's talking about, right? Then he says, afterward, another craftsman comes and builds on it, talking about Apollos now. So builders, beware. See that? In other words, what Paul is saying is, is that, Remember, he was taken to the third heaven, and the Lord Jesus himself revealed to Paul through, through time this, the gospel truth. This is why most of the New Testament is written by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, because God revealed to Paul the gospel truth, as you know. And he says, so the foundation has been laid. So he says, beware, including you, Apollos, how you build on that foundation. In other words, don't go and change the foundation, and don't go and build stuff that shouldn't be on that foundation. Can you see? It's all about doctrine. It's all about the teaching and the preaching, right? He says, Let every builder do his work carefully according to God's standards. In other words, as God leads them and shows them. For no one is empowered to lay, watch this, an alternative foundation other than the good foundation that exists, which is Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying in that is, is that God has shown me the gospel truth. And it's Jesus and the finished work of the cross. And he says, and I have laid that foundation. And he says, the rest of you beware how you build and make sure you build on that foundation. Don't change the foundation and build something else on it. So this you can see in context all along is talking about those who preach and teach the gospel. And so anyone who's called needs to understand that. But you can see the context here is that of those called to preach and teach. We're getting there, okay? So let's continue now with verse 12 and 13. It says, The quality of the materials used, now you know that it's talking about doctrine, by anyone building on this foundation will soon be made apparent. See that? God's paying attention and God is going to do something with that. Whether it has been built, watch this, with gold, silver, and costly stones. In other words, if that doctrine was quality doctrine and the right doctrine and the doctrine that it should be, it's going to stand the test of fire. Or wood, hay, and straw, all materials that burn up. 
And you know, all of those are a type of humanism and human ideas and self-help and all of that stuff, all things that, you know, humans do for each other, to help each other. He says, their work of what? That's preaching and teaching will soon become evident. And here it is. For the day will make it clear because it will be revealed by blazing fire. And the fire will test and prove the workmanship, in other words, the doctrine of each builder. So you can see in context, this is specifically talking about those who answer the call to preach and teach, or even those who decide without the call to preach and teach. They will actually face this unique judgment, if you will. And their, what they taught, their doctrine, what they imparted to others, will be put through the fire. And unless it was, and I can teach on gold, silver, and costly stones, we don't have time for that, and I can teach on wood, hay, and straw, because those things are just, it's a powerful message all on its own. But really it's talking about the quality of doctrine or the lack of quality of doctrine that just burns up. He says, but each one's doctrine will be put through the fire. Then it says in verse 14 and 15, watch us, all in context. If his work stands the test of fire, he will be rewarded. So if your doctrine was good and it was based on Jesus and the finished work of the cross and God's grace, truly, it, you will be rewarded. If his work is consumed by the fire, he will suffer great loss. In other words, you spent your life teaching something that was not good doctrine or gospel truth, and you're going to suffer and loss, lose all that you've done. Yet he himself will barely escape destruction like one being rescued out of a burning house. In other words, you cannot lose your salvation. God's not going to damn you for that. You're just going to realize how you wasted your life preaching the wrong doctrine, the wrong truth of the gospel. That's what he's saying. And you know, there's many today who have titles, who have expanded and done so much, and yet they preach a mixture of law and grace. They still preach legalism. They still preach things outside of Jesus and the finished work of the cross. You know, they preach self-help. They preach feel good. And I, I'm not trying to be judgmental here because I think it's important to hear all those things. But they should always go back to the foundation. They should build on the foundation of Jesus and the finished work of the cross and God's grace truly. Amen. And so you can see in context here, you see the, how the context explained it to us. The subject is that of those who teach and preach the gospel. They, their works of doctrine will be put through the fire. Amen. And so the warning and exhortation here is to make sure that they teach and preach on the foundation God revealed to Paul, which is Jesus and the finished work of the cross, or you could say God's grace. That's what this is about. And in actual fact, Paul makes this very clear. And I'm going to just read these portions so you can see that that's the basis, the foundation of his doctrine. The grace of God, Jesus, and the finished work of the cross. Watch us now, talking about hardships here that he faced. Acts 20 verse 24. Look at what Paul says. He says, But none of these things move me. In other words, all the hardships that he faced. Neither count I my life dear unto myself. Watch us. So that I might finish my course with joy. Look at this now. And the ministry which I received of the Lord Jesus. And then he says what it is. To testify the gospel of the grace of God. Notice, Paul was a grace preacher. Paul preached the grace of God. Because the gospel is about the grace of God. 
Amen. Paul said it himself. Acts 20 verse 32. Watch what he says. And now, brethren, I commend, to you, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all of them which are sanctified. Can you see how Paul's emphasis was Jesus and the finished work, which really reveals the grace of God? And he says it's about grace. Preach grace. You see, anyone who preaches anything other than grace is not preaching the gospel truth. He said it's the gospel of the grace of God. And he says, build on that foundation. Amen. Galatians 1 verse 6, watch what he says there. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you, watch this, into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Once more, he calls the grace of God the gospel, the gospel truth. And in this case, there were some who, who were going back to legalism or mixing law and grace. And he says, I am so shocked and surprised after me sharing the doctrine of the grace of God, how you just going back to other things, to works-based you know, Christianity, to help, help self-help Christianity, to this and that, when you've understood the gospel. But again, he emphasizes the grace of, of God. Then in Ephesians 3 verse 2, watch what he says. If ye have heard of the dispensation, in other words, the time that we live in, of the grace of God which is given me to you word. So Paul says, my call, my ministry was to teach to you the grace of God. And that's the dispensation that we are living in until the return of the Lord. And he says, that's where the focus should be. And you know, that Jesus and the finished work of the cross reveal the grace of God. It is because of the grace of God. And so you can see that anything other than that is doctrine that those who preach and teach it will one, stand, will one day stand and face this judgment before God and their teaching and their doctrine will be put through the fire. And if it's good quality, good solid doctrine based on Jesus and the finished work of the cross and the grace of God, then it will stand. But if it doesn't, it will all be burnt up they will suffer great loss. So they could have had these huge ministries with thousands of this and hundreds of this and titles and all that. And it will mean absolutely nothing because it didn't reveal gospel truth. This is why we who answer the call to preach and teach need to understand what it is that we are stepping up to and then need to trust God to use us effectively. Amen. So the only true gospel is the one which reveals the grace of God. And that's what he's talking about. Amen. We trust that you are blessed by this message. For more information about our ministry or to make a donation to help us continue spreading the gospel, please visit our website at redemptioninjesus.com.